You're listening to the Hackable You podcast. On this episode, we report on Microsoft's ongoing research into the Nobilium hacking group activities, a data breach impacting Mercedes-Benz, and more web scraped LinkedIn data up for sale. The topic of the week touches on the subject of code signing, attacks, and countermeasures. Lastly, in Secrets from the SOC, we discuss the use of file hashing and how you can use it in your role as a security analyst. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to another episode of the Hackable You podcast with me, your host Ed, and my two colleagues and co-hosts, Will and Alex. Good evening, guys. Back again. Another episode. How are you? How are you doing this week? I'm not a football fan, but it's coming home. <laughs> hey, you had to get it in there oh, as well. Yes. What timing? Oh, yes. Did you watch it? Yeah, I was in a pub of you, mate. <laughs> Look, I'm just trying to captivate the audience. I know, so yes, I know. I, I, we were in quite a civil pub. We were in though. a very civil pub, and we couldn't really see the screen, but we wasn't trying to. The point was just to be there drinking, and they happened to have the football on. So yeah. <laughs> Some of the videos of uh, you know when the girls come in and the, the news have all the clips of the different bars and stuff, and you literally you see white males with their tops off, <laughs> throwing beer in the air and jumping all over each other. Any European or anyone else from any other country is going to look at England and be like, "Yeah, classy." <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it classy as always. I think we we were, we were just sitting there with our glasses of wine, just being extremely civil. <laughs> Oh, you glasses of wine, there, don't you? Jesus. So rah rah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh no, sure. no I said that. Sorry, Sorry I meant big jugs of beer. <laughs> Steins. Yeah, and the news of Matt Hancock as well. It's been quite a fun week of news, isn't it? It's been interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's. I've got mixed feelings about about the whole news of Matt, on Matt Hancock. In some ways, it's you know, it's never um, it's never kind of uh, boring, is it? When when a when a politician has goes out in a ball of flames, is it? Yeah, political scandals. Just I mean, people love it. I mean, I, I literally it. spent about three days just getting constant memes with Matt Hancock. Yes, there are so many. Um, <laughs> and, on, and on the other side of it, it was infuriating to know that on one side of the fence, he's telling us all that we can't go and see dying relatives, and then he's snogging people. So, yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a mixed feeling one, wasn't it? It was funny, but also pretty pretty aggravating as well. Oh dear. Well. That's enough of the real global news. Let's hop into the cyber news for this episode. I hope you like that segue there, guys. I'm quite impressed with that. God, I, I'm proud of you. That was good. Was that on the spot or you had that planned? <laughs> no, they're literally on the spot. It's legit. <laughs> Microsoft have been tracking a Russian state-sponsored threat group who are responsible for the SolarWinds Orion supply chain attack. The hacking collective known as Nobilium, I think I'm saying that right, I often say that a lot, (laughs) have been seen using password spraying and brute force attacks targeting Microsoft customers who are being notified of the malicious events via the nation-state notification process. A Microsoft blog details the targets by saying, the activity was targeted at specific customers, primarily IT companies, followed by government and smaller percentages of non-governmental organisations and think tanks, as well as some financial services. The activity was largely focused on US interests, about 45%, followed by 10% in the UK and a smaller numbers from Germany and Canada. In total, 36 countries were targeted. 
The plot thickens though, as Microsoft also detected an info-stealing Trojan on the device belonging to a Microsoft support agent. This Trojan provided the attackers with basic account information related to Microsoft subscription services. There is evidence to suggest that the stolen information is then being used for a widespread phishing campaign by the same threat actors. The SolarWinds hack has really brought to light the vast offensive campaigns by the Russians against the US. I've mentioned a number of times before and the full extent of the SolarWinds hacks are really yet to be discovered and fully understood, and I'm certain more is yet to be discovered. What do you make of this one then guys? Bit of brute force activity seems quite noisy for an APT, no? I guess so, but clearly effective, as it often is, you know. Yeah. I mean it's yeah, it, it, I guess we we've got used to some slightly more Gucci. I say Gucci, let's not get carried away, but you know, very <laughs> you know, much more quiet and long term kind of covert, yeah, and longer term, you know, slow and low jobs, haven't we, over you know, over the over the year and this is more, more like bringing a sledgehammer to a hammer party, isn't it? So. A sledgehammer to a hammer party? I mean, I've heard you, of yeah, a you've sledgehammer. Yeah, you've made that up. Have you guys never been to a hammer party? Because it's, you know. <laughs> We're missing out. Isn't apparently. that Hancock just kick off all the time. There's loads of nails, nails to nail. <laughs> what do you make of the fact that it was a Microsoft support worker, though, that's had, uh, you know, a, a Trojan installed on there? Device. Well, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but this is not the first time the support tool has had problems. So about a year and a half ago, maybe even two years ago now, the support um, tool itself had data breach due to a cloud misconfiguration and very similar types of information was leaked around um, Microsoft subscription services and, and very generic sort of support information. So while it wasn't anything um, relating to sort of PII, it was stuff that could be used in a phishing campaign. It was very specific, like here's the services that are being run by Microsoft for you. Um, you know, things that you could put into an email to combine in a social engineering attack. So interesting that it's the second time this sort of thing has happened in the space of about two years. Yeah, it does make you call on what Microsoft doing about it. They clearly have a host of information and I don't think it takes a lot of information about the kind of subscription services. It's nothing like, it doesn't take secret information to put in an email to prove that or have that legitimacy um, side of social engineering. You only really need to go customer name, customer number, and a list of services you've got, and it's going to probably look like the legitimate Microsoft emails that you get. So, yeah, I do. I think they've got a lot of work to do to try and maybe provide a maybe provide a bit more integrity behind the uh, you know the notifications that they're sending because out. It shows that those um those support desk you know um, jobs and people are still going to be nice targets, which I guess makes sense because they're a kind of they you know they're quite often jobs that are taken by perhaps newer people to the industry um and but you know but on the same time they've also got slightly more privileged you know uh, access than than most most employees so they're probably that's what probably makes them a little bit more targeted and more more easy to kind of get get to attract attractive as well isn't there an attractive sort of easy sort of picking sort of entry point into an organization and um, I, I think we really shouldn't underestimate the value that this sort of generic support information has um, because, you know, we sort of talk a lot about protecting our crown jewels and our PII and our PCI, but it's this very generic stuff that can then be used as part of a bigger campaign, a fish, a fish, a social engineer that can give away a lot more data. So, yeah, just because it's not fitting into one of your regulatory categories doesn't mean it shouldn't be protected.
Well, next up, we're looking at the popular German automotive supplier Mercedes has disclosed a data breach impacting at least 1.6 million or more customers and potential buyers. Data, including customer names, addresses, emails, phone numbers and some purchase vehicle information were all subject to the breach after an insufficiently secured cloud storage instance was exposed. However, what makes this breach worse is that the breach also exposed credit card information, social security numbers and driver license numbers of under a thousand Mercedes-Benz customers. As a response, Merck are in the process of notifying customers and the list of under a thousand customers whose additional account information was leaked have been offered a free two-year credit monitoring service. Another instance of poor cloud security practices using storage services such as AWS S3 buckets or Microsoft blob storage comes with risks. Inadvertent data exposure continues to be reported in the news and is a cause for a number of data breaches. It's sort of like when I saw this story, I was like, another day, another breach. You know, it's 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 another big name in the headlines for a very similar thing of data, customer data not being kept secure enough. It's a it's a misconfiguration. Now these theme, these thing these themes are recurrent over and over again. What I think is quite unique in this instance, though, is that some customers had had like the full whack compromise. So it wasn't just yeah. so you, you sort of often see, oh, you know, PII and no PCI or you see a little bit of PCI and no PII. In this case, there's some customers who are impacted by the full bang of PII, PCI, driving license at the whole nine years. They got completely screwed. So just like... I was going to say, you know, these these. Which, you know, if you read between the lines, I mean, well, well, it says there actually, doesn't it, that essentially it's probably some sort of insecure S3 or blob storage bucket um, that's been spun up for, for customer data and then left, you know, either insecure or, or misconfigured, which is a real, you know, issue. And the reason why I think it's an issue, these buckets are spun up so quickly, especially in large organisations and so frequently that I don't think many organisations have a great deal of process and governance around um, that around the fact that when you when you spin up a bucket in, in the development um, are they you know are, are they spun up to a secure standard and configured properly um, who checks them and who, who confirms that they are I think most of the time you might get in most companies someone going around and manually checking them but in most places it's probably not that kind of automated level of you know check that's needed to to keep up with the pace of these things being being built reading deeper into the data um some of the customer records that are there date back to 2014 so in my mind i'm either thinking this is a cloud instance that's been you know misconfigured since 2014 <laughs> i can't even think if we had s3 buckets and stuff in 2014 or whether there's some form of digital transformation, cloud migration that's gone on and data's moved over to the cloud. It's been done in this kind of, oh yeah, we'll just move it, we'll leave it there. And that's, like you said, Will, because of a lack of governance, a lack of process, no kind of secure by design or development lifecycle, they're not securing it at the right points. Things are getting published to the internet without the correct parameters involved enough to I think, secure it. I think I, if I was going to bet my money, I'd bet on the latter on that. It was probably data that was being moved or... Or, you know, or reintroduced or added somewhere, existing data, and you know it's, it's been added to a new bucket that's not secure. Um, I don't, but who knows? You know, it could it could have been sat there for the last six six or seven years. But I, I feel like the, the more likely thing is, you know, alongside with many other companies that are moving to moving 
you know resources to cloud we're going to see more and more of this of you know the whole cloud migration you know um not going to to plan from a security point of view i'm going to uh, slide in and plug a talk i did with alert logic all about uh cloud migration i'll leave the uh, link for it in the the show notes because actually it talks about some of the key issues about lift and shift and the different cloud migration strategies and the security holes that you should be thinking about to try and avoid just looking at um kind of cloud storage services and some of the best practice you can focus on there i think some of the tips i would want to leave listeners thinking about are you must ensure that cloud services are only exposed to the internet for specific reasons you know they don't need to be accessible over the, the plain internet unless they have to be Furthermore, ensure that access control, authentication are all in place, but most importantly, encrypt the data. You know, it's okay, there was an exposed uh, S3 bucket or misconfigured S3 bucket or whatever that had data in it, but why is that data then stored in clear text? Encrypt that data at rest and make sure um, it's implemented within all of your solutions that you don't store clear text data if it's related to customer records. It's pretty much simple security privacy 101 um, and they're the things i'd want people to think about go back have a look at your your cloud storage understand the processes that your organization have and ensure that the simple checks and balances are in place and the controls are in place to protect you and the last news item we're going to talk about this week is actually quite a new one relating to linkedin data scraping so it was reported in april this year that data for linkedin users was captured in a data or web scraping issue it's happened again, basically. A new posting with 700 million LinkedIn records has appeared on a popular hacker forum, according to researchers. Analysts from Privacy Shark stumbled across the data put up for sale on raid forums by a hacker calling himself God User Tom Liner. The advertisement posted on the 22nd of June claims that 700 million records are included in the cache and included a sample of 1 million records as, quote, proof. According to LinkedIn, no breach of its networks has occurred at this time. They have released a statement saying, while we're still investigating the issue, our initial analysis indicates that the dataset includes information scraped from LinkedIn, as well as information obtained from other sources. This was not a LinkedIn data breach and our investigation has determined that no private LinkedIn member data was exposed. Scraping data from LinkedIn is a violation of our terms of service and we are constantly working to ensure our members' privacy is protected. Second time in a year. It's got to be something going wrong here, no? Or we spoke about data scraping, I think, in one of the topic of the weeks, right? It, it's, it's clearly a problem that LinkedIn is struggling to kind of get their head around. If you look at the recent scraping instance that the, that instances that, that there have been, all, all the vendors give this little statement where they say scraping data is in violations of our terms of services like it's i don't know almost like an excuse as if to say i'm sorry that this has happened and it's against our terms of services but what they really need to be doing is putting in the technical controls in place to stop it from being able to happen in the first place there's no good just pointing out that something is wrong or this is against policy you need to make it so it can't be done I'd be interested to know what they mean by that the data that's been scraped has been kind of collated with information from other sources as well, like the data set, what value is it actually showing to a cyber criminal or someone who might want that data set? Because we can all go and scrape LinkedIn data here and I can find out that Will is a security analyst working at this company and Alex is a security manager working at this company and great, but what value is that? So how are they supplementing this to make it valuable for a popular forum like Raid? I'm hoping there'll be some analysis that'll come out on the data set, you know, in the coming weeks, but I'll be interested to see how much of the data is new and how much of it, like you say, is kind of all kind of pieced together. Um, 
because there's there's a tendency on the dark web to to essentially you know regurgitate the same information in a slightly different format and then set up yeah. set it again as something new and su- supplement it with you know a little bit of data here and there and it's almost like a little bit of you know the kind of you know people trying to pull a fast one isn't it really it's not it's like buying a dirty car. It's a bit like a doughboy, isn't it? Hoovering it. Like a doughboy. Yeah, literally, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. That's um, really... or, or the dad in Matilda where he's like really dodgy with his car dealership. It's just like, yeah, it's um God, those look at those choices. That shows your age. <laughs> doughboy. I haven't watched Matilda. Matilda in a very long time. It's a great film. <laughs> it's just data that's already there, right? Like you yeah, as you yeah. as you say, you sort of freak out and go, Oh Christ, it's my location. But actually, it's my location that I gave to LinkedIn on purpose. Yeah. So it's just data. <laughs> It always goes back to those the, the common things about privacy online and only post and share things that you're happy yeah. that are out there on the internet. <laughs> yeah. If you don't want data about your locations to be uh, potentially accessible, then don't do it. Simple as, right? And, and um, if you haven't listened to the podcast where we have a topic of the week on data scraping and web scraping, please go and have uh, a listen to that one. It's quite insightful and to get you a better understanding about what people are doing and how they're claiming this as some form of breach or or or. or trying to sell it as useful data when it's all just public information anyway well that wraps up the cyber news for this week thank you very much guys let us slide on into topic of the week so topic of the week this week we're going to be talking about code signing now the wikipedia definition for code signing is as follows Code signing is the process of digitally signing executables and scripts to confirm the software author and guarantee the code has not been altered or corrupted since it was signed. The process employs the use of a cryptographic hash to validate authenticity and integrity. In English, this means that a piece of software has a digital rubber stamp of approval that proves the code is legitimate and has not been changed. Very much like the certificate of authenticity you might get with a luxury watch like a Rolex or something. The process is kind of as follows. A developer will add a signature to a code or content using a unique private key from a code signing certificate. When a user downloads or encounters signed code, the user's system software or application uses a public key to decrypt that signature. The system then looks for a root certificate with an identity that it trusts or recognizes to authenticate the signature. The system then compares the hash used to sign the application against the hash found on the downloaded application. If the hashes if the hashes match, then the computer trusts the software and the software can be run. So we can see how this is important as it stops attackers from altering legitimate code for malicious purposes as they cannot sign their malicious changes. Essentially, it makes it harder for Trojans and things to be created. So, you know, guys, where have you seen code signing like in the real world? What what what's the kind of human part here that you, you'll notice as a normal person? Um, so you'll most likely encounter this when you're trying to run a piece of software and you'll get that little pop up box and it says, Do you want to proceed? Like, do you want to run this piece of software? Yes or no? And it will include a publisher on there and sometimes it will say unknown, or sometimes it will give you the actual name of the, the publisher, and I believe that is the um the source of, of the software that shows you it's legitimate so it, you know if it's unknown or there's something random in there that's potentially a problem but if you are running something that says publisher microsoft it's likely that that is a trusted piece of software for microsoft for example common like uh, advice you'd give is never run code which is publisher unknown although many many legit pieces of software do have unknown written there it's a bit of a uh not false positive but you know it's, it's good advice if you're 
downloading an email or something that looks a bit fishy and you see that maybe just think twice i think this is the trouble isn't it is that you know i think most average your average user at least tends to just ignore it and click okay because you know you know if it yeah if it does say microsoft then great if it doesn't then it then sometimes you you i don't know about you guys but i've you know ran a piece of software and then the the signer has been some really obscure name and then you google it and do you know 10 minutes researching to find out that actually that is the right name because it's like a parent company or something. And do you know what I mean? It's a, yeah, most, yeah. You know, that's the trouble with it is that it's not. It's, it's still not you know particularly user friendly enough to for people to make an informed decision most of the time. Is it you know I think, um, and yeah. that's why most people just bypass it and or accept it. And you know, really probably the only people that pay much attention to it is the techies. I think what's yeah, really Im- important though is like you said edits context like if you've opened a really random looking dodgy email that you were not expecting and then suddenly you're being asked to run software published by evil core you're going to be a little bit like oh what's this um so it, i i think that whole sort of picture and context around what are you doing what are you expecting what are you not expecting uh, is really really important here true true However, in every good process there is like code signing to try and prove legitimacy, there is a hacker trying to find a way around that. So we're going to jump in and use the MITRE ATT&CK framework to support some of the techniques that attackers use to get around code signing. So the ATT&CK ID T1588 is for obtain capabilities. Now there is a sub one, a subcode 003, which is all about code signing certificates. And basically it explains how attackers will um, use uh, code signing certificates to achieve their outcomes and actions on uh, and actions upon objectives. So, guys, you want to talk to me a little bit about how uh, you know this this tactic uh, is used, how attackers are using code signing in many ways to you know be successful. Yeah, the really famous worm virus Stuxnet that used signatures that were stolen from uh, two companies, Realtek and J Micron. They're like really well known technology companies based in Taiwan. Um, so they had certificates that were already legitimate and they would have been trusted to run on your system. They were stolen essentially and they were used to sign the malware. So when the malware is run, it thinks that it's being run legitimately from these companies uh, and therefore it's allowed to run, hence the, the payload propagates across your network. And Stuxnet was, you know, a little while ago. Um, it still happens in the modern day. So in February 2020, researchers attributed a new malware strain called Pipemon to a well-known hacking group, hacking group called Winty or the Winty Group. They created a backdoor which was signed using a certificate belonging to a video game company that the threat actor hacked and stole in 2018. So the process is they identify a company who they think they can breach in order to steal code signing certificates. Winty Group did that in 2018. And then they then use those certificates, which are still valid, to sign their malware, which is used for the Pipemon malware. It's a pretty sneaky tactic and it's, you know, quite difficult, I can imagine, to um, identify. So... uh I guess it's also worth calling out um, around you know, what sort of, I guess, uh, victims and targets would are, are quite popular with you know getting um, their, their certs stolen, um, and generally you know we see a lot of um, kind of video game companies um, getting attacked, in particular ones in South Korea and Taiwan. So we can link that back quite easily to exactly what Alex said around about context. So if you receive a phishing email or whatever that says, oh look, here's a 
uh, an update patch for critical windows updates and you open and run that and the publisher is some gaming company based out of taiwan and uh and south korea there's the disconnect and obviously you have to be fairly educated and understand what's being put in front of you to go well the payload's called windows update or chrome update.exe but it's been signed by uh, a company that build video games that's the kind of disconnect that, that that people don't identify and that's why people will just happily click yes because it's going to be trusted by the system because it has been signed the mitigations though for code signing issues are there's nothing out of the box i think some of the the key ones to think about are really protecting your cryptographic infrastructure so whether it be your certificate authorities or your public key infrastructure code signing certificates as you can see are very useful tools for attackers if they can get their their hands on them you've got to be thinking about how do you protect those those certificates where are they stored who has access to them privilege access management rights around you know only allow minimal people to access and use those certificates there are other things as well, like making sure that you're trying to threat hunt and trying to identify exfiltration of your certificates, looking at what's traversing your network, stuff that Alex, I'm sure, in the IR space, if a breach is to happen and something like that's been stolen, you're going to be doing threat hunts, right, to try and find where these keys have moved across the network. Yeah. A couple of other things you can you can focus on when it comes to any form of cryptographic management are revocation so being able to revoke certificates saying okay this one has been uh, breached it's been stolen we're now going to revoke it it's not going to be trusted that will flag issues and problems when someone tries to then use that certificate or sign code to run on someone's system but also making sure that you're renewing certificates the, the winty group example is the best one that to mention right a, a group was attacked in 2018 and likely a code signing certificate stolen then Two years later, that same code sign certificate is then used um, to pr provide legitimacy for a piece of malware. Now, there's an argument where you should be renewing your code signing certificates maybe a little bit more regularly to ensure that things like that don't happen, especially if you identify a breach. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that sort of hygiene piece is really, really important. Um, I read a really interesting article from Trend Micro who did some sort of arbitrary research into um, just binaries in general and the, the outcome was really, really interesting in the fact that there was loads of sort of adware fake av worms droppers pieces of ransomware that were that were signed by completely legitimate certificates so i think it just goes to show that there's lots of um lots of illegitimate is that the right word lots yeah. of false signing is is out there and it is, it's prevalent cool all right well that's quite a meaty topic um do go and have a research on code signing and, and if you you know if you're working for a company that do software development have a software development life cycle try and understand a little bit more about how they're signing their code uh, and how they're managing those code signing certificates let us move on into our exclusive segment secrets from the sock so this week on secrets from the sock we're going to discuss about file hashing so we're going to talk a little bit about what a file hash is why we use them what you can do with them and give you a bit of a challenge and something that you can do as one of your takeaways from the secrets in the sock this week so i'm going to ask will put you on the spot can you explain to me what a file hash is hashing means essentially taking a input string of any length um, and giving out a output of a fixed length it's a it's a cryptographic procedure a math, a math we're loving the uh, cryptography basically. tonight aren't we we're going maths overload today. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say cryptography is my favourite, but it is a necessary no, tough, you know, yeah, evil. Yeah. Um, some people really love it, don't they? But I'm not one of those people. Um, so you, <laughs> when we're talking about hashing algorithms, we're talk, you, you'll, you'll hear things like um, MD5s, uh, SHA, SHA256, 
512, 384. There's loads of of different hashing algorithms. Um, And if you ever do um, things like the um, CompTIA Security Plus exam, they'll, trust me, there's a a whole section on it, which you'll probably want to die a little bit inside because I know all three of us it made my ears bleed and my eyes bleed reading and listening to the content. Yeah. But it is it is interesting. But it is, it's unique Yeah, I, I mean, I remember all three of us at different points just banging our heads on the desk whilst, whilst reading about that. Um, oh, yes. Ecliptic curve, Diffie-Hellman. I'm like, oh, yeah. pain. But it's a, it, you know, it is a funda- fundamental element of security, isn't it? So, it's, you know, you can't, unfortunately, yeah. you know, you need to understand it. Um, but when we're talking about hashing, you know, I guess what, the question is, what 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 would you use it for? You know, in an average day in SOC, is probably a sensible question. And um, I mean, from my point of view, I I, I used it before I even came to um, to um, to information security because we used to use it in the police to um, ensure uh, electronic data integrity for evidence. So we would capture a piece of digital evidence, cap, um, hash hash to the evidence be that a file or a piece of cctv or something um, and then that um, hash value will then go on top of the would then be attached to the piece of evidence um, so that if when it went to court they could check that the hash matched they could hash it again check that it matched and then they knew that that piece of electronic evidence hadn't been tampered with you speak about using it in a sock then and you've obviously used it in the police to provide that what are the more common things that people in a sock would come across a hash for aside from the the cryptographic side of things that you might learn discuss or maybe go into in the future well so mainly from an indicator of compromise point of view so iocs when you're searching uh, or any whenever you're handling a, a file within the sock so it would be that in an investigation or a threat hunt you will want to have a hash of that file because that hash is more often than not it won't always be but more often 99.9 percent of the time that hash will be the unique uh, value for that file so if you're looking for a certain file in your network running a search on the hash will most likely show you where that file has been or where that file is um, an example if you have a piece of malware so if a piece of malware is coming to your network and you want to see um, where else that may be, you may be doing a search across all your endpoints to see which endpoints have seen certain file hashes. You most likely be using SHA or MD5. Um, and it's a really, it's a really quite a simple way just to be looking for that file. Um, and it's also a really good way to get threat intelligence. So there's lots of sort of open source for intelligence feeds where you plug a file hash in and it tells you things it knows about that file, be it malicious or non-malicious or what the community has said uh, that file is likely to be. With that threat hunting, threat intelligence mindset on, there is the Pyramid of Pain. If you've heard of the Pyramid of Pain, which is a kind of list of artifacts that you will discover during your process of IR and at the top of the pyramid are the more difficult ones so the top are ttps it's very difficult to identify ttps and right at the bottom the simplest things to use and understand within any form of threat hunt and threat intelligence framework are kind of ip addresses and, and file hashes it, it, it what i do want to call out as well is that as will said hashing is a way of providing integrity for data so we're speaking specifically now about a a hash for a file but you can also hash passwords and databases and many other use cases for it so understand the use cases of hashing but at a SOC level and an IR level when it comes to a file hash it can be used like Will said to provide integrity but also very common indicators of compromise that you can use when your threat hunts within your threat intelligence use cases to try and identify malicious things going on in your in your networks a, a, a key tactic that 
used to bypass a lot of the standard signature based um, AV when it was just looking for a known bad hash is that look at Mimikatz for example a very popular credential dumping tool used within many many red team tests and uh, and threat actors you can decompile Mimikatz you can make a couple of changes to the to the file and the system of the code that how it works and recompile it because you've changed that code the integrity of that file has changed. You now have a new file hash, and that's how you used to be able to bypass a lot of those signature-based AVs because it doesn't recognise it as a known bad file. Nice. Okay. I so I I would challenge you to go and have a look at your your seam logs and go and identify the, the um, file hash field. Just as, as simple as that, because you may have come across it before and thought, oh, what's that? Don't know what that is. Don't know what MD5 is. Don't know what these random string of numbers are. But you know, go and have a look. Go and have go and pull out a seam log and just go and see where it says md5 hash and identify that yeah yeah and i would suggest if you are interested in kind of a malware reverse engineering or a bit of threat hunting and threat intelligence identify um, some key forms of malware maybe have a look at some of the prevalent ransomware that's out at the minute like uh, <laughs> uh Ryuk, right, yeah like, revil like uh, Revil, any of the maze stuff that's now defunct, but um, go and take the file hashes uh, and and search them in threat intelligence feeds. Look at Alien Vault OTX, look at Virus Total, look at Hybrid Analysis, and see what searching the hash pulls back and what you're able to see from it, because you'll understand how important and how useful a file hash is within an IR and threat intelligence scenario. Good uh, practical advice. So that wraps up the podcast. There, we will jump into our key takeaways now. And you're not allowed to cheat. None of you are allowed to say what you've just said around uh, oh, to do with on. <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna go with code signing. Oh, I'm do. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, we'll get in there first. <laughs> this is the trouble. Uh, what what, what I would say with code signing is perhaps go away and. and um, if you don't already know, understand it, understand where it comes from, and where it's you know where where it's kind of managed in the organisation, because it should be kept kind of quite locked away, like we said. Um, and you know, any particular teams you know should kind of have the availabilities for it. So if you don't if you don't know how it works in your environment, in your in your team, in your organisation, I'd say go away and find out because that will help you with things like threat hunting. Because if you know where it should be, then you can look for places where it shouldn't be. My key takeaway is going to be about the pyramid of pain, which I mentioned in roughly what we spoke about with file hashes. Understand a little bit more about the pyramid of pain, other forms of indicators of compromise, and try and see the uh, the use cases that you can build for your threat hunting campaigns based on that. I actually am going to talk about hashing because I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed. You have to forfeit something. No, I've got I've got a very useful piece of advice. I want everyone to go away. <laughs> I want everyone to go away and identify the sources of their logs in their environment that show you um, file hashes. I feel like you repeated yourself. Will, jury's out on this one. Are you going to uh, send him to send her away? Should we kick him off the podcast for this? <laughs> I didn't repeat myself. I think that was a very good point. Ah, oh, you mean you did say you'd go and have a look at your seam logs and see the file hash field. But anyway, we'll let you off. We'll wrap up the podcast there, <laughs> leaving Alex in the doghouse. And we all thank you for listening. Thank you very much. And I'll catch you all in the next episode. Bye.